1 Corinthians 14, beginning at verse 1. I'm not going to read the entirety of the, uh, of the text this morning. Uh, for the sake of time, we're going to dive into all of this, but I do want to read the first couple of verses, beginning at verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the one hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Amen. May the Lord add our blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Uh, before we dive too deep into this chapter on this morning, a very difficult chapter, a very challenging chapter, obviously, in our study through 1 Corinthians, notice that this discussion or our discussion from last week carries over in a very small way into the discussion that we're about to have this week. Last week, we said that Paul was using chapter 13 to make a statement about our use of spiritual gifts, and that is this. All gifts and their exercise must be shaped and formed by love with the intent to be used by God in a way that will edify the body. All gifts have to be that. Otherwise, their exercise is falling short of their purpose. And that's what, we, that's what we established last week through the popular chapter, uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter as it's often called. That's what we established last week. So Paul appears to seal that truth as he transitions to a discussion about two gifts in particular. He seals that truth um, in, in, in verse 1 by making one final appeal to love in verse 1. Pursue love. Pursue love. You see, before you pursue gifting, you must pursue a deep, sacrificial, kingdom-minded, God-honoring, me-second, others-first, patient, kind, forgiving love. Because if you earnestly desire gifts without pursuing love, you will become nothing more than a pursuer of power. And that is not a healthy position to seek in the kingdom of God, a place where the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, says that this is a place where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This is not a place where we are seeking and craving and grasping for power. So here's what Paul understands. Paul's or here's what Paul understands. Paul understands that we can aspire to exercise our gifting and not be motivated by love in that, in, in that aspiration. So what on the surface can appear to be very spiritual can in fact be anything but spiritual. Because we can be driving to get gifts and driving to exercise gifts and pursuing gifts and not pursuing love. So that's why Paul begins this chapter by saying what? Pursue love. That's the first thing. Gifting, that's great, but pursue love. 
So we get that one final challenge before Paul turns back towards gifts. And he introduces sort of a ranking system for two gifts in, material, uh, in particular. Now this ranking system stays in line with Paul's call towards love. Because when we operate out of love, what do we do? We seek to put others first. When we operate out of love, we seek to build up our neighbor. When we operate out of love, we seek to strengthen the church in their faith and in their walk with Jesus Christ. We seek to give and not just simply receive. We seek to um, uh, use our gifting for the collective good. And it is for this reason that Paul caveats his call to the church to desire the spiritual gifts with these words. He says, yes, pursue love. Desire the gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, Corinth seems to have let the gift of tongues run amok in their church's worship gatherings, from what we can tell. Folks are turning, turning loose with their tongues, uncontrolled, unrestrained, no pursuit to understand what's being said. And Paul wants to set the record straight on the proper understanding and the proper use of these two gifts, prophecy and tongues. Now, one of the most challenging parts about this discussion is defining these two gifts. Because too often we are trying to have a discussion about these two gifts and the proper use of these two gifts while not necessarily being on the same wavelength in terms of what these two gifts actually are. So I want to spend a lot of time this morning actually defining them. We're going to probably spend more time defining them than we're going to spend with the rest of the text. Let's first define prophecy. Because before we can begin to make sense out of what Paul is saying in this chapter, we have to make an attempt to understand what does he mean when he refers to the gift of prophecy. There's a lot of thoughts on this in the theological community. And based on everything I read, here's my best take. First, I don't believe that Paul has in mind a room full of people speaking on par and with the authority of the apostle and the prophets. <clears throat> when we talk about prophecy, I don't believe Paul is thinking that the prophets that are in Corinth are writing and authoring scripture for us to follow ages and ages and ages to come. You see, the prophets, the old prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied with scripture authoring authority. And I don't believe after the, uh, anyone after the apostles have been given that kind of authority to speak in that kind of way. The Bible has been written and the canon has been closed. However, I also don't have any confidence that Paul has in mind a room full of people just reading their Bibles and then explaining what the text means, almost taking on the shape and a feel of just a seminary lecture or a seminary class. I think prophecy is a little bit more than that in this text as well. Somewhere in between is probably the type of prophecy that Paul has in mind. Speaking from Scripture and with the authority that has already been established through Scripture, this kind of prophecy takes God's word and through the power of the spirit speaks a timely and relevant message that changes or has the ability to change those who hear it. 
Let's take, for example, have you ever been in worship and the preacher just seemed to have the right word at the right time just for you? And you left that day saying to yourself, man, that guy was all in my mail today. It was like he was reading me or, or, or have you seen a preacher maybe take scripture and, and speak to a cultural moment or a major moment in society that left people saying days later, weeks later, even years later, man, that was a timely and relevant word that seems even more relevant today than it was when he spoke it. That's the kind of thing that I believe Paul has in mind as he describes the prophetic word in Corinth. It wasn't authoritative in the sense that, that, that where it speaks a word contradictory to the law or where it speaks a word that usurps the law and usurps the prophets and usurps the, uh, the apostles. It wasn't even something that the church all over the world would be expected to follow and apply through age and age and age to come. Let's take, for example, Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, there's a scene where Paul is preparing to uh, leave and depart or make his way back to Jerusalem. And there's a group of godly men, godly disciples who surround him. And through the spirit, the Bible says, they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They say, hey, Paul, there is nothing but trouble in Jerusalem. Don't go. Through the Spirit, the Bible says. In other words, the Spirit has revealed this as a clear indicator to them that something is going to happen to Paul if he goes. So the men receive a prophetic word, but it is one in which they see clearly what will happen, but they don't understand the complete purpose behind Paul's going. So that was prophetic, but it wasn't necessarily authoritative. Do, do you understand that? They got a glimpse of revelation from God to say, yes, Paul, something bad is going to happen. But they didn't get the complete picture in terms of understanding God's purposes and allowing Paul to go. I absolutely love what one theologian's definition of New Testament prophecy is. He says, prophecy combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons and communities and situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or longer discourse leading to challenge, comfort, judgment, or consolation, but ultimately building up the addressees, end quote. That's what prophecy is in a New Testament sense. So as we consider prophecy, keep that definition in mind as we move now towards tongues. Now, tongues is a lot more difficult for me. But let's see if we can make some sense out of it. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there's this scene, the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Then it says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were astonished and amazed saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea or Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. So here in this text, we absolutely have actual human languages being spoken because men and women gather from other nations and they hear these men and women declaring the wonders of God in their own language. And they say, how is this possible that they're speaking my language and declaring the glories of God in my language? So speaking in tongues here is at least a spiritual gift where human languages unknown to the speaker are spoken by the speaker to testify the glories of God to people who speak these languages. At least we know that. Now, where most of the debate on tongues comes in is in chapters 12 through 14. Because what we know in chapters 12 and 14 is beyond any doubt is this. Tongues is not a gift that every spirit-filled believer will have. And we know that because the scriptures tell us in a very clear way. One place where we see that is in chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. It says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues are all apostles. no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Yes. No. The answer is the same. Does that make sense? So we know just from what Paul says here that tongues is not a gift reserved for every spirit-filled and empowered believer. Here's another thing we know based on 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 13. We also know that uncontrolled public outbursts of tongues is not considered to be within the order of how we are to worship God in church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 26 through 29, look there with me. It says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most. Oh, sorry, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is being said. None of this is really the debate in the scholarly and in the theological circles. What is debated is could the gift of tongues possibly be um, include an unknown prayer language? That's the big debate. And the strongest justification for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 1 where Paul says, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels but have not love, they say, well, what about that? The tongues of men and angels. Or well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, where we just read, where Paul says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. 
For no one understands him, but he utters, utters mysteries in the spirit. And so many people say, well, what is that about? Theologians and scholars, they say, what is that about? Or 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14, where Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And they say, well, what is that about, that praying in a tongue and my spirit praying? What is that about? Some would say, yes, there is an unknown tongue of angels, theologians, scholars. You can read many solid. They're going to say that. And, and so people are on both sides of this. I don't have an answer for you. I don't. Some would say, yes, there's an unknown tongue of angels and we have the ability to speak it. I would say that this is the only time in which tongues of angels is mentioned and it is intended to be exaggerated. For example, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, Paul, when it says, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Paul acknowledges that when we are speaking in tongues without an interpreter, that no one understands us but the Lord. Now, while that may be the case, the question is, does Paul in this context see that as a good thing or a bad thing? And we'll discuss that shortly. And then in that last verse, chapter 14, verse 14 through 15, where it's basically saying, hey, my spirit is praying. Again, notice the context. Paul's point here is that it's not necessarily a good thing that my spirit is praying, but my mind is unfruitful. And thus he says, I will pray in the spirit and I will pray with my mind also. He's talking about public prayer even in that setting. He's not talking about private prayer in that setting. And so while there are good Christians on both sides of the debate concerning the special prayer language, there is not a whole lot in Scripture to build a really big, robust doctrine on this. Does that make sense? Now, tongues as a legitimate, supernatural speaking of a language that is unknown and unlearned to a person who knows that language in order to bridge the language barrier with people who do know that language and point people to Jesus, yes, Scripture absolutely declares and speaks definitively about that being an actual gift that was given to the church. And there is a proper and an improper use of that gift, of which most of the time we are improperly using it. But beyond that, I don't have a whole lot to give you. And I'm okay with saying that. I hope you don't leave the church. So now that we've defined these gifts, let's turn our attention quickly to some of the things that Paul wants us to come away with as we think about these two gifts. Why is prophecy greater than tongues? That's the biggest point Paul makes here. Why is it? Well, first, according to verse 2, one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. The one who speaks in another language unknown by him and those around him does nothing to contribute to the common good of those around him. That's the first reason why prophecy is greater than tongues. 
In order for us to understand verse 2, we have to think about Paul's teaching for the last three chapters of 1 Corinthians that we've been walking through. He has been constantly pointing us over and over again to the need for the church to use our gifting for the common good, for the collective good, for the whole. Your gift does not terminate on you. Your gift is supposed to and is intended to be used for the sake of others. That's what he's been saying over and over and over again. So when Paul says you're in the middle of worship praying and speaking in a way where no one understands you but God and you're uttering mysteries in the spirit as far as everyone else is looking, uh, as, as everyone else is looking on, that is not meant to be considered a good thing here. You have to understand that. He's talking about public prayer. He's talking about public singing. He's talking about public speaking. And he's saying when you are in public and you are making these public prayers and public declarations in an unknown tongue that nobody knows, then you are no longer promoting the common good. You are no longer building and edifying all of us. What he's getting at is he's saying, remember, your gift is supposed to be used in order to strengthen the body. But the reason why tongues is not greater than prophecy here is because this gift has no other purpose at that moment than to possibly strengthen you. On the flip side, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, it says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. So according to Paul, those that speak relevant, timely, incisive words that are empowered by the Spirit and under the authority of the Word of God are contributing to the church's upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. You say, well, why, 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 why does prophecy do that? But tongues doesn't do that. It's quite simple. Because you can understand the prophecy. One theologian writes that the gift of prophecy properly used results in people being stronger in their faith and in their walk with Christ. The word translated encouragement has to do with the act of emboldening, emboldening rather, another in belief or, co or course of action. And here reinforces the ideal of the previous word. It may also mean essentially the same thing as the following word, translated comfort and consolation, which has to do with that which serves as encouragement to one who is depressed or in grief. That's what prophecy is doing. Prophecy is building up. Prophecy is encouraging. Prophecy is consoling those that are depressed and those that are grieved. Notice the fusion of this gift with bona fide love. Paul says when this gift is used correctly, it upbuilds, it encourages, it consoles the saints. And all those words are loving words. So you can't get the true spirit-empowered prophecy detached from love of neighbor. Does that make sense? On the other hand, tongues cannot encourage the collective body without interpretation because we can't understand the language that's being spoken. And Paul reaffirms that in verse 4 where he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
Again, now, there's a ton of debate as to whether there is some possible good in praying quietly in an unknown language to yourself. And we will not solve that debate today. But again, remember the entire purpose that Paul highlights behind the gifts. And what is that purpose? To build up the church. So his point here is not to say, yes, we need more of this tongue speaking during our public worship. His point is to say, you are not contributing to the building up of the entire body during the public worship without interpretation. Now, when is speaking another language in public worship equal with prophecy? Paul tells us, verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up or built up. Now, don't get the interpretation. Don't don't take that too loosely either, right? There was once a guy who showed up at a church on a Sunday morning. He was a fluid uh, fluid in his, uh, in his Greek speaking, very fluent in his Greek speaking. And there was a, a moment in which people were, you know, there was, a, there was an eruption of, uh, of a tongue, an unknown language that went forth. And this person began to speak and, and, they, and they spoke and they went on and on and on in their speech. And then the, the gentleman that came in that was fluent in Greek speaking decided to interpret that tongue. And so he interpreted that tongue and then, um, and, or rather he, I'm sorry, let's, re, let's rewind. He spoke the tongue, but he spoke the tongue in his fluent Greek. The person came up and they decided to interpret what was said because they said, is there an interpreter here? They said, yes, I can interpret it. And they interpreted it. And then the gentleman said, no, that is not what I said. I just recited the first chapter of John. So that is... So let's be careful when we say, yes, I have the gift of interpretation, so speak away. You know, speak whatever tongue you want to speak, and I will interpret that tongue. Let's be careful with that too. Amen? But seriously, imagine if you were Billy Graham during one of his great stadium-sized crusades, and and rather than open your Bible that day and and preach a timely, incisive, and relevant uh, evangelistic message pointing people to hope in Jesus Christ, you just break out and start speaking in the language of some small tribe in the West Indies. There's a possibility that that might have been an unbelievable experience for you. You might, Billy Graham might say, man, I've never done that before. God has never used me like this before. But who is it serving? You tracking with that? Or imagine if Dr. King on the great day in August 1963 in the March of Washington, instead of speaking that timely and relevant word on unity and freedom called the I Have a Dream speech, he spoke in the language of a small tribe nestled in the Amazon rainforest for 30 minutes. There's a possibility that Dr. King might have been, might have had a powerful experience for, uh, on that day and say, he might have said to himself later on, I've never spoke like that in my entire life. But who is it serving? Are you, are you tracking with that? That was, my, that was the best Dr. King impersonation I got. Verses 6 through 12, Paul digs his heels into this thought 
that tongues without interpretation are inferior to prophecy by further making his point with a few metaphors. Notice the metaphors that he uses. Verse 7, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? You see, when you listen to instruments, you listen to songs, the songs give you a certain distinct sound that separates it. And they use, and, they, and, and it's useful, the distinctions are useful and memorable for the user. A sequence of notes separates one song from the next. Does that make sense? Da 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 da. There you go. Da 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 da. There's distinction. But say we just say da 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 da. What song? What, what song is that, right? That's what tongues is. That's what tongues are in a public setting. Just one note that you're banging that no one can understand and join and unite with you in. There's no common collective understanding that's established. That's what Paul is saying. Tongues without interpretation is a voice without distinction. It's a note. It's a song without notes. Just playing the same note over and over and over again and asking someone to make sense of it. When a tongue is spoken without the ability to recognize the patterns at work, there is no common unity that can be established. We cannot all get on the same page. Without a way to distinguish when spoken sound, one spoken sound from another, we can't gain common understanding. And Paul takes it deeper in verse 8. He says, if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So it's not just common understanding, but it's common preparation. What if in the middle of a surprise attack, instead of hearing the bugle sound that's playing the song to alert everyone that it was time for battle, you heard taps? The sounds played during a military funeral. That would make a huge difference in preparation, wouldn't it? Paul's point is that a lack of clarity in our communication leads to a lack of spiritual preparation, a lack of spiritual harmony, a lack of unity, a lack of understanding, and a lack of development in our churches. That's the point he's making. In verses 10 through 11, Paul moves from instruments to actual real human languages to articulate his point. He says, verse 10, there are doubtless many languages, many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Paul's point is that no language exists without bona fide meaning. It doesn't matter how many of those languages exist in the world. The power of a language is first established in, his, in its ability to articulate something that another can hear and another can understand. That's where the language power comes from. Not just in speaking it, but in the listeners grasping it. Do you understand? Tongues are given ultimately, as we see in Acts chapter 2, 
first and foremost, as a gift for those who don't understand to supernaturally be able to understand. When it shows up in Acts chapter 2, they didn't appear merely to be some sort of exclusive gift that creates a class of haves and have-nots. On the contrary, what the gift did in Acts chapter 2 is brought people together, didn't it? To the people who understood the languages being spoken by the disciples that day, the gift was used to draw them to God. So in light of Paul's words, how should we proceed then? Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 14, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul said it's good that you want to see the Spirit of God in a visual and tangible operation. It is good that you want to see the Spirit moving prominently in and through your church. However, pursue it in such a way that it leads to what? The building up not just of you, but the building up of the church. How are you using your gifting to build, not just you, not even just your family, but the collective church? As we have been saying over and over and over again the last several weeks, don't allow your gift to simply terminate on you. And this gets right to the heart of why Paul would say in the beginning of this chapter, what? Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but pursue love, especially that you may prophesy. Why? So that you can build up the entire church. It's why we hear him say in verses 5 through 6, yeah, I want all of you to speak in tongues, but I want you to prophesy even more. Why? Because the prophecy leads to what? The church being built up. That's why we hear in chapter, uh, chapter 14, verses 18 and 19, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because if you understand, you can be edified collectively and built up collectively. Common understanding, common encouragement, common edification, common consolation, common growth is at the heart of why God, by his spirit, has given you the gifts that he has given you, even the gift of tongues. You see, this attitude should be, should be exercised in everything we do, even if we're talking about teaching. If you have a gift of teaching, you have, you have an intellect, you have a, you have a gifted intellect, the goal is not to obstruct and obscure with big, unreachable words that nobody can understand, making the gospel hard to grasp and difficult to grasp. The goal is to bring edification through understanding so that the common good may be built up. So how does Paul go about fixing the problem of disorderly, chaotic, and selfish demonstration of tongues? We're almost through. Verse 13, he says this. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if I give thanks with your spirit, 
How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul's answer is to only use the gift of languages when the presence of an interpreter is present. He calls this an alignment of my spirit and my mind. If my gifting isn't used with the goal to bring deeper and clearer understanding of the gospel of Christ and his will for the church, it is most likely going to lead to chaos. And so this is a call to operate in the spirit with understanding for mutual growth and mutual edification. Your gifting should make way for clear presentations of the gospel. Yes, you may be speaking in a language that is giving thanks to God, Paul says. But if you're not building up anybody else by thanking him in that language in public, what good is it? That's what he says. What's interesting, you know, about tongues and language is that it is evidence of both the fall and evidence of God's work in redemption and restoration of his people. You know, for example, in Genesis chapter 11, the Bible tells us that there was a group of people who sought to make their name great. So they decided to build a tower to the heavens. God saw that they were building the tower to the heavens and he came down to observe. And what did he do? He said, we're going to obstruct this by doing what? By giving them different languages. So the different languages became evidence of our fallen, our fallen nature, our fallen humanity. It was a mark of our fallenness. But then Jesus comes to earth. Jesus Christ comes to earth and he he. He comes to earth in order to heal our, heal our division between, him and, between man and man and between man and God. He comes to earth in order to forgive us of our sin. He comes to earth in order to rescue us from our unrighteousness. And so it shouldn't be all that surprising that shortly after his departure from earth, after he dies on the cross and raises from the grave and he ascends into heaven with all authority and power in his hand, God demonstrates that reconciliation is actually happening between him and man by bringing together the nations the same way that he separated them, with language. In Acts 2, what? We see the birth of a church on display and the prevailing sign of that, that birth is the gift that we get a chance to understand one another again. But to what end? To the end, of, to the end of just showcasing a gift? No, to the end of declaring the glory of God. So they were given the gift in Acts chapter two to declare the glory of God in all languages so that everyone that was gathered could hear about this beautiful and this wonderful God. That was the purpose of the gift. So tongues, the gift of tongues is a, is a reflection of God's heart for the nations. It's a display of God's commitment through Christ to reconcile the world back to himself and back to one another. And so that's what that gift is intended to be used for, but that's what every single gift is intended to be used for, 
to point us to the hope of Jesus Christ. Every gift that we have is intended to bring glory and honor to Jesus by pointing the lost towards Jesus and building and encouraging and consoling those that already know him in order that they may continue on with him. That's what your gifting is for. Are you using your gifting in that way? That's the question that we should all leave with on this morning. Am I using my gifting to point folks to Jesus? Am I using my gifting to build up, encourage, and console those that are already walking with him? Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you all the thanks and praise and glory and honor.